<clears throat> I've come a long way since first receiving this back in Christmas. Now, believe it or not, the top speed on this thing is about 12 miles an hour. It doesn't sound that fast, but believe me, it's fast enough to put a hole in the wall of your mother-in-law's kitchen and crack her kitchen table all at the exact same time, all right? Now, by brief show of hands, how many of you have ever had a desire to ride one of these things before? All right, a few of you. You can put your hands down. Uh, here's the moment of truth. How many of you are secretly pulling for me to fall flat on my face? Now, you are a bunch of sick people, all right? Now, say you were daring enough to give this thing a try at some point in time. Now, before stepping foot on it and after making sure that you had good medical coverage, uh, I would first tell you that standing on this thing is nothing like you've ever experienced in your life before. You won't be able to keep your balance because you've never stood on a hoverboard before. It's not like standing on the ground. And so as you stepped foot on it for the very first time, I would, if I like you, uh, spot you, all right? And after getting acquainted with it for a little bit of time, I would then tell you that if you want to move forward, if you don't want to just stay in one spot, you've just simply got to lean your body weight forward and you're going to go forward like this. And if you want to go backwards, all you do is shift your body weight backwards, all right? Now, typically when people ride this thing for the first time, they get a little bit comfortable at this particular point. And honestly, as a bystander, this is the most exciting part for me to observe because this is when people, what I like to call, get a little bit overly confident. <laughs> now, say they want to go down a hallway or something, they will go a little bit fast. And usually this is the point where you either wipe out, you break something, you're forced to jump off rather quickly, or all the above, all right? Now, there's no question that riding this feels a little bit unnatural and awkward and foreign at first, but I will tell you that after enough time, it just becomes second nature. Now, what's interesting is that the more you ride this hoverboard, the more your brain is rewired to think differently about how you stand, about balance, and about gravity. You see, what seemed unnatural and weird and just strange at the beginning, all of a sudden becomes like a, second, like a second habit. It becomes something that is formed in your mind. Now, one of the most famous things that Jesus ever taught is a message that's been traditionally referred to in the church as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in this particular message, Jesus talked about this thing that he was supposedly bringing to this earth called the kingdom of God. It was a new and better way to live. Now, to be honest with you, for the first century audience, hearing this message for the first time, I mean, it seemed strange. It seemed a little bit awkward and, and foreign, and things were just backwards and upside down upon hearing this for the first time. And, and to Jesus' credit, though, he did say that life with him would require rewiring how you think and how you live. And perhaps that's why Jesus ended his talk by saying this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, if you think about it, you don't need to practice something that you've already mastered, right? 
In fact, we get that word practice from a Greek word that literally means to, to master something after habitually doing it over and over and over again. And so it's in essence, Jesus is saying in this message that, look, life with me and my kingdom, it seems backwards, it seems weird and strange at first. It, it's not going to make sense if you look at it at your first glance, but after enough time, after enough practice, you're going to realize that it's just a better way to live. And so today we begin a brand new series called Rewired, where we're going to be looking at this thing called the kingdom of God for the next eight weeks or so. And we're going to actually examine a small segment of that message found in the Sermon on the Mount for the next eight weeks or so that's found in Matthew chapter 5. But today, you need to know, is all about setting up where we're headed for the next two months or so. Now, if you've been a part of church before, you've more than likely heard that phrase, kingdom of God, or if, if you've never been to church before, if this is your first time, then, then you're probably wondering to yourself right about now, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, that just seems a little bit mystical. And so to kind of start off all on the same foot and to clarify some terminology, here's how we're going to define the kingdom of God in this series for the next eight weeks. The kingdom of God is this, the reign of God where all creation is reclaimed and restored. So the kingdom of God is the reign of God where all creation is reclaimed and restored. Now before you think this is some mystical definition here, let me help you out by confusing you a little bit more. God's kingdom is, is here right now, but it's also not here yet. If we're honest, it's tough to recognize God's reign today because we live in a time where God has allowed his enemy, Satan, to have limited power. Jesus began this restoration process of ushering in his kingdom 2,000 years ago and showed us a glimpse of what's to come in the future. But in the meantime, we live in this tension of, of now, but not yet. I mean, it's here, but it's not complete. Now, let me explain it this way. All right, my grandpa fought one of the most significant battles during World War II that we will all remember tomorrow. June 6, 1944 is what's referred to as D-Day. This is when American and Allied troops stormed Normandy Beach and began liberating the northwest part of Europe that was under Nazi control. Now, looking back, that alone was the decisive battle that determined the outcome, victorious outcome of the war. But here's the thing. The war didn't end until almost a year later on May 8th, 1945. And so during that 11-month stretch, victory for America was imminent, but we didn't experience all the benefits of winning until Germany had fully surrendered. And so picture this time that we live in right now as that time between June 6, 1944 and May 8th, 1945. You see, citizens in God's kingdom are guaranteed to be on the winning side, but the war's not over yet. The decisive battle has been fought and won by King Jesus when defeating death 2,000 years ago. Now, before we look at our story today, I want you to notice that word in our definition, reclaimed, that's really significant. If you think about reclaiming something, it implies that you used to own it, you used to possess it, right? And so... The question is, what, what about creation, what about this world did, did God originally own? And the answer is this, all of it. You see, the very first words of Scripture talk about how God is the originator, the designer, the creator of all things on this planet. 
He made it all for his glory and for our satisfaction. That's why God placed our very first parents, Adam and Eve, in the middle of creation to manage creation and to experience joy and delight. Now, the best way to describe the daily reality for Adam and Eve at this particular point in time goes back to this Hebrew word that we've looked at the past few months called shalom. Now, shalom can be defined as absolute wholeness, harmonious, peaceful, flourishing life. And so God designed humanity to experience shalom every moment of every day. But then something happened, right? Adam and Eve rejected this perfect shalom-driven kingdom and wanted to build their own. You see, what happened was Adam rejected his God-given responsibility to lead and to protect his wife, and he allowed her to be deceived into into disobeying the one boundary that the Creator asked them to abide by. You see, Adam's sin was passivity, which led to Eve's sin, which was disobedience. And so when that happened, God removed his kingdom, which meant the opposite of shalom was now the reality of all creation. And so in other words... According to Genesis chapter 3, everything has been cursed. This is why animals fight and feed off one another. Floods and tornadoes tarnish the planet. God said that men would experience burden and stress with their jobs. Women would encounter pain during childbirth. Now, having just witnessed a birth two months ago with our youngest, I must say that I'm incredibly grateful for the medical advancements that limit the pain during the birth I mean, the epidural really did wonders, all right? And Savannah enjoyed hers too, all right? (laughs) But in God's grace and goodness, from the moment sin first entered creation, he said that he would re-enter it and and reclaim what had been lost and and what had been broken. And so that inaugural moment is what we're going to look at today. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of John, all right? Uh, it's in the back forth of your Bibles. It goes like this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and on. And if you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on that table right as you walked in a moment ago. We are encouraging you to rob us, all right? That Bible is our gift to you. Please take it home with you and uh, get familiar with it. Now, for the next eight weeks, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, but before Jesus preached that message that we're going to look at, Matthew chapter 4 talks about how Jesus was going around all the land at the time and was doing all these miraculous acts. He was performing miracles. And so, in other words, Jesus was, was giving validity to what he was about to explain and what he was about to teach in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what's interesting is that the biographer, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, a friend of Jesus named John, whom we're going to look at today, he refers to these supernatural acts as signs. And so signs point us to something, right? And so the question is, what do these miracles point us to? Well, they point us to the fact that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, that he was God in the form of man. And so as we look at this miracle today, Don't think of of Jesus suspending the natural order whenever he performed this miracle. Rather, think of it as him restoring the natural order of what it was originally meant to be like. 
All right, and so we're going to pick up here in verse 1, uh, but John here is an a eyewitness of the very first sign that, that Jesus did. Now, this specific miracle is full of symbolism that tells us different things about God's kingdom. And so see what Jesus is doing here as that first shot on D-Day, as the initial advancement in the winning battle over the kingdom of darkness. And so pick up with me in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what we read. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply, and that's really important, the wine supply had run out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told them, they have no more wine. This is a problem. Now, John is setting the stage for Jesus to begin making all things new of reclaiming creation. Now, it's no coincidence that such a significant moment occurred at a wedding. Ancient and traditional cultures put more of an emphasis upon family and community than we do today. A wedding was an event that the entire, communicated, uh, the entire community celebrated because more families in a town meant that there would be more economic prosperity, that it guaranteed them military security, and the city overall just flourished. And so this was a custom for celebration to carry on for at least a week. The wedding reception lasted a week, and let's be honest about something. I mean, what in the world would keep people interested and entertained at a reception for that long of a time, right? Well, it's the same thing that inspires many middle-aged white men to think that a wedding reception is the perfect opportunity to break out some killer dance moves. <laughs> Lots of wine. And no, we're not talking about grape juice here. This was the real stuff. And so of all the miracles that Jesus could have performed during his opening moment, why in the world did it involve wine? Well, regardless of your experiences or convictions about alcohol, Scripture tells us that wine is symbolic for many things relating to God's kingdom. You see, within boundaries, Proverbs chapter 3, Deuteronomy chapter 7 Jeremiah 31 and countless other passages describe wine as a gift from God. Now, many times in the Bible, God would give wine as a blessing, as a reward, and even motivator for people to obey Him. And so, apart from abusing this gift from drunkenness and intoxication, wine symbolizes God's goodness. And so, as Jesus sat at this wedding, being the good Jewish boy that He was, there's no doubt that he was thinking about what God told the prophet Isaiah would happen during the celebration after his kingdom claimed victory once and for all during that final moment, during that final battle. Here's what Isaiah says will take place whenever we're brought into the new heaven, the new, the new earth, the, 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 the heavens. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, all nations, a banquet of aged wine the best of meats, and the finest of wines. You see, when the wine ran out at this wedding in Cana, it represented that, that life outside of God's kingdom, it's just empty and unfulfilling. You see, living far from God, living a life where, where, where God does not exist, no lasting goodness can be experienced there. And isn't that some of our stories in here today? I mean, can't that describe some of our pasts? 
right? Well, another reason why Jesus chose wine to be his first miracle is because it, it represents joy, all right? Psalm 104 says that good wine gladdens the heart, hearts of men. Joel 2 says that when God's reign is final, we will experience great joy. Why and how? Because vats will overflow with good wine, God says. Now, understand that joy is different from happiness. Happiness is all about circumstances in an environment that is temporary. But you see, on the other hand, joy It's this deep-rooted gladness that is a result of placing citizenship in an unwavering kingdom. I mean, how else can you describe a guy in our church who only has days left to live? But if you were to spend a few moments with him, he doesn't seem hopeless. He's not experiencing despair. In fact, he's excited. He's anticipating what's to come. I mean, how else can you explain a couple in our church who recently lost their daughter, and rather than being hopeless, rather than feeling as if all life has been lost There's this sense of joy about them because they know that because there is an empty tomb in the Middle East today that they will see their daughter again someday. Now, how does joy like that occur? Well, it occurs by placing your hope in a kingdom that is not of this world. Tim Keller says it like this, how is Jesus going to bring us our joy? By losing all of his by leaving his heavenly existence with his Father, by leading a lonely, misunderstood life, by going to the cross and dying in our place. And so if Jesus decided to step in and provide wine here at this reception, he was saying that this new, this better kingdom he was bringing to earth is all about joy. And so at this reception, the dilemma of no wine was only escalating. I mean, it was so noticeable that Jesus' mom noticed. It would be the equivalent here of buying tickets for a Cardinals game only to show up at Bush Stadium and for the Cardinals to not be there on game day. This was a big issue. And so look at how Jesus responds to his mom in verse 4. Dear woman, (laughs) that's not our problem, he says. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now, it sounds like Jesus is talking a little smack here to his mom, right? Dear woman, just try that. See if that works for you later today. (laughs) But back then, this was actually a very polite response that Jesus could have given. Now, notice that Jesus says that that, that my time has not yet come. What did he mean by that? Well, Jesus knew that if he did what his mom was asking him to do, that people would start to notice, and all of a sudden, the countdown to his death would begin because people would realize there's something different about this guy. He might even be divine. He might be the Messiah that our prophets have been talking about for thousands of years. And so that's what Jesus meant when he said, look, mom, my, my time has not yet come. But more than that, I want you to notice how, how Jesus made it perfectly clear to Mary that the lack of wine, it wasn't his problem. It wasn't his issue. It wasn't because of his lack of planning. Yet Christ knew something that's easy for us to miss here. If Jesus didn't provide wine, these newlyweds would be subjected to a lot of shame and embarrassment in a honor and shame-driven society. You see, this couple was absolutely desperate for an intervention. Now, time out here for just a minute. You may disagree with this, but chances are you walk in here today with a lot of shame, 
Now, shame comes from that part of our life that we want nobody else to know about. And just so you know, I struggle with this as well. I have my own shame. I have my own struggles, all right? And by God's grace, this is something that he has been graciously teaching me how to deal with in my life lately. Now, I want to give you one little example of this that I really hesitated to share with you today. The one thing I don't want you to know about me is that I struggle with depression from time to time. Now, it's not as bad as some stuff that I know a lot of you go through, but ever since high school, this is a struggle that I occasionally come across uh, in different seasons of life. Now, why is it that I hesitate to share that with you? Because it's a weakness? Because it's telling you that I'm not perfect? By me sharing with you that I struggle with depression, I'm telling you that, hey, I'm broken and I'm not as put together as some of you may think that I am. And so my shame then is about how I respond to that one part of my life that I don't want anybody to know about, which is depression. And, and so what does my depression tell me every single day? What is my shame that I carry with me? How does it make me react and respond? Well, it says things like, you're not good enough. I can't be accepted. I don't measure up. I'm not strong enough. And so I'm learning that if I don't constantly look to Jesus, then I will react to my shame that's from my depression and fill that part of my life with a lot of unhealthy practices, practices and seek to validate myself in honestly in a lot of prideful ways. And so chances are your shame drives you to do different things in life too. Your shame puts pressure upon you to always crack the joke, to always be the life of the party, because you know what? You want people to like you because you fear that if they got to know the real you, they wouldn't like you. Your shame maybe causes you to shut down whenever you get into an argument with your spouse because that's your way of defending or protecting yourself, right? Your shame maybe causes you to lavish more and more money and gifts upon a grown child because deep down, if you were to ask yourself the motivation behind that, it's because you feel this guilt for not being there for them as a parent whenever they were younger. You see, to deny the root of our shame only makes us more enslaved to it. And so Jesus is kind of at this crossroads here at this reception. What's he going to do? Is he going to spare this couple of shame or will he choose to go on with his life and with his agenda. And yet what we're about to see happening here in this moment is the very same thing that Jesus can provide us and offer us today. It goes like this, that our sin and shame is our fault, right? It's part of living in a broken and dark world, but Jesus, he made it his responsibility so, so it's our fault, but, but Jesus actually said, no, I will take that on myself and, and actually make it my fault and my responsibility. And so sparing this couple of shame by providing wine was a foreshadowing of the cross. By dying the death we deserved, Christ assumed responsibility for our sin and shame that honestly wasn't his fault to begin with. And let me just tell you something, regardless of what you maybe been told in your past, Jesus is not surprised by your sin. Do you know why? Because Jesus actually became your sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it like this, God made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so whatever it is that you're dealing with today, whatever brokenness, darkness that you're carrying around, please realize that 
God does not want to get you back. No, being a part of his kingdom is, it's all about taking you back. Let's keep going here in John chapter 2. Look at verse 6. Standing nearby were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill these jars with water. Now when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the master followed his instructions. Now why is this significant right here? Jewish ceremonial washing. Well, these jars represented the way that people used to find forgiveness for their sin under the Jewish sacrificial system. Now, at the heart of this entire system was a blood sacrifice. You might sit here and think, well, that's weird. Why blood? That's just crazy. Well, because we're sinners. And you see, sin needs to be punished. Something must die in my place. And so under that old way, a priest would slaughter a lamb, take the blood of the lamb, and go before God and pour it out on the altar of, the God, of God, signifying that something had been paid for because of all the rebellion of the people. And so by using these jars, Jesus was announcing a new way for people to find purification and forgiveness before God. And that new way, it required Jesus laying down his life. And so that's why the eyewitness of this story, John, a friend of Jesus, he repeatedly refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Look at verse 9. We read this. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink and is in a drunken stupor, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. Now, the reason it was custom to provide the best wine first is because it's just what you think. You are still conscious and aware enough to take part and take delight in the different notes and to enjoy the, the complex flavoring of the wine, all right? But you see, once you've had enough wine, it doesn't matter. You can't notice the difference between a bottle that's bought at Walmart or Thornton's, right, or an aged select bottle from Italy. And so Jesus made the best stuff here. All right? You see, Jesus provided such good wine here that it even satisfied the standards of those who were hardest to please. And so again, this is what life in God's kingdom is like. He provides fulfillment and true satisfaction that ultimately we're all looking for. Now, if I were to tell you that you could have gratification, that you could have true lasting satisfaction, very few of us would reject that offer, right? I mean, you would be crazy to say, no, that's not really what I want. I want to continue being miserable in life. <laughs> yet that's exactly the offer of Christ, yet we have to ask ourselves, why do so many people refuse following Jesus? And so for the next eight weeks, in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to explore just what it looks like. But if, and this is a big if, if you decide to come back, if we haven't scared you off yet, I don't want you to be caught off guard. I don't want it to be a bait and switch. And so I want you to know in advance kind of the direction that Jesus is going to take this part of his message, what he's going to how he's going to describe being a part of his kingdom is like. And so the, the first thing that um, we're going to learn is this, that Jesus is going to say, hey, look, other people are more significant than me. 
And that, that's you saying that. Other people are more significant than me. This, this requires saying this to be a citizen in his kingdom. I mean, if the king of this kingdom is described as someone who did not count his divine nature as something to be used to his advantage, I mean, if, if he sought to serve others and show them their true value, then should we really expect to be elevated over those who are around us? You see, when the king of this kingdom entered this world to serve and not be served, expect for him to change the way that you see people and the way that you treat them, even those who are hardest to love. You see, citizens have equal rights. Honestly, none of us deserve to be here, and none of us can behave our way out of it, too. This is why the love that the church offers the world is so different. It's not centered around status. It's not centered around color or heritage. All right, we're all equally broken, and yet we've all been equally made in the image of God. And I have to tell you, I love being a part of a church that loves the world so well in this capacity. Eric Cummings, the director of Community One here in Evansville, seeks to, uh, the organization, one of our partners that seeks to love the poor by restoring homes was telling me this past week about a single mom who, who recently lost her husband. When she reached out to Community One in the spring, she was living in a mobile home with three kids. Well, CPS had been called in because the floors in her house had rotted so badly that you could see the ground beneath the trailer. Well, a group of you here from Crossroads grabbed the project and replaced a big section of flooring in the home to stabilize the kids' situation there at their house. No charge, no fees, no name recognition. Eric wouldn't even tell me who you were. Why show that kind of love? Because we serve a king who is so serious about reclaiming what's been broken that as citizens, we can't even overlook a floorboard in a mobile home. You see, that single mom will probably never give a big donation to our church. But she may never step foot on one of our campuses. But you see, when you've been given a lot of grace and patience from God who had every right to overlook you, and this is my story, you're free to elevate others around you, no strings attached. I mean, this is the kingdom that the only kingdom that exists for those who are not a part of it yet. Now, someone on the outside is missing the chance to be reclaimed and restored by his or her creator. This is why God continually tells his children to go, leave what's comfortable, and invade dark places so that this kingdom can advance and people can experience a better life in redeemed eternity. This is why in the next five years, our elders and staff believe that, that Crossroads is going to be one church in five different locations across the tri-state region. As late as early fall, we anticipate launching our online campus where we are going to take the weekend experience to people's living rooms through their mobile devices, computers, and TVs. Rather than coming to us, we're going to say, hey, we're going to you. Our third location, which will be our West Campus, will likely open its doors sometime during the first quarter of next year. Now, although this campus will be located on the west side of Evansville, we are not starting this site just for West Siders. And so if you commute from Mount Vernon, Poseyville, Carmi, New Harmony, Wadesville, Crossroads West will be more accessible to you and those in your life who are maybe close to you but are far from God. I mean, just think about how much money Crossroads West can save you on gas every single week. 
Now, if you are one of the 400 who commute from any of those regions to this Newburgh campus every single week, I want to challenge you to begin thinking and praying about what it could look like for you to be a soldier in God's kingdom in the region where you live. I mean, ask God to prepare you. Begin asking, I mean, what would it look like for the kingdom of God to be right here in this part where I live? I mean, what about creating a list of about 50 people who live near you, who live in your neighborhood, and begin praying for those people to be a part of Crossroads West when we launch? If you're curious, if you're skeptical, if maybe you're hesitant or you're interested in being a part of Crossroads West, I have a really practical next step for you to take, all right? On June 17th from 6.30 uh, to about 8 o'clock or 7.30, we will be gathering at Wright's High School on the west side of Evansville for what we are going to simply be calling a night of worship. Now, this night will also serve as an informational gathering for, for what it looks like for Crossroads to be one church in multiple locations and what it looks like for, for our West Campus to begin launching in that part of our community. We know that you have a lot of questions about this and that things are a little bit fuzzy for you right now. And so throughout the year, expect for us to provide these little offset environments where you can learn more about what it means to be one church in multiple locations um, moving forward. But I want you to think about it like this. I mean, if a year from now, we could begin communicating and illustrating the gospel in eight, eight different times in three different locations every single week, rather than three times in one location like we're doing now, how much more accessibility could we give people to the kingdom of God? Remember, Crossroads, we exist to connect everyone everywhere to Jesus by multiplying leaders, campuses, and churches. And so moving forward, rather than people coming to us, we're going to go to them because we've got work to do. Another thing that uh, we're going to learn in this series is this, that, that brokenness is better than independence. And brokenness is better than independence. Jesus is going to totally flip our perspective of freedom by showing us that, that it really happens through vulnerability it happens through shedding light on weaknesses and, and declaring dependence upon him. You see, only when we're stripped of this illusion called pride do we position ourselves for God to restore us. And my experience has been this, that sometimes for his kingdom to come, our kingdom must go. Well, the last thing you can anticipate learning in this series goes like this. We can begin experiencing life as it should be right now. I mean, since Jesus turned the water into wine, the reign of God has begun taking over this tainted planet that has been defiled by the evil one. God never meant for you to feel lonely and left out. Right? God never meant for you to wake up one day and become a single dad. God never meant for you to have a child with disabilities. God never meant for you to always feel this pressure of being good enough. God never meant for, for there to be such a thing as sex slavery. Now, what I'm not saying is that the solution to all your problems is to simply become a Christian and things are going to vanish away and it's going to be a walk in the park. In fact, I might tell you just the opposite, that following Jesus will probably increase your issues. That's what Jesus promised, actually. But you see, when you begin, when you begin a relationship with Christ, a miracle happens. You see, the living, breathing creator God takes up residence inside you, and from that moment on, he begins shaping and molding you to be who you were meant to be. And so the God who had to sever himself from his creation due to sin at the very beginning of time, because of his son paying the debt that we owe on the cross, 
He can now be found living within each person desperate enough to cry out for him. And so as a result, this is how a guy named Paul says it like this when writing to a church 2,000 years ago. He says, though outwardly we're wasting away, in other words, that's just the reality of living in this kingdom, we're eroding away, yet inwardly, because of Jesus living and dwelling within us, we are being renewed day by day. You see, each day God is supernaturally preparing us more and more to dwell with him when this war ends. And just like Jesus promised, though, this is going to require a lot of practice because it seems a little bit backwards to live life in his kingdom. And so again, for the next eight weeks, we're, we're going to be looking at this kingdom in a more thorough way. And our first kind of reaction might be, this is counterintuitive, this is countercultural, this just doesn't seem comfortable. And yet my question for you is this, what if that very sense of it seeming backwards is evidence that that's actually where you were meant to be? Because you see, this, this life has a world, this life has a way of making us feel comfortable and normal with brokenness. You see, what we expect is, is cancer, right? What we expect at the end of our life is to die. What we expect is, is dementia. What's not uncommon to hear about is unemployment and poverty and, and severed relationships and divorce. But you see, according to our Creator, that's backwards. And so what if by the very sense of, of God's kingdom seeming to be backwards is evidence that this is actually where we were meant to dwell. And we're almost done here. Now next week, we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 5 and specifically looking at verses 3 and 4. I have a little bit of homework for you, though. All right, for us to rewire our minds, it's going to require filling our brains with new information. And so this next week, I want to challenge you to begin reading the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 every single day. All right? Now specifically, I would like for you to memorize verses 3 and 4 in that text. And you might want to write this down on your bulletin or on your phone. All right? I want you to memorize verses 3 and 4 of Matthew chapter 5 and begin reading the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 because verses 3 and 4 is where we're going to pick up next week as we continue on this journey learning about what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. All right? Let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to sing one more song. Uh, get out of here. And uh, before we do that, though, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. All right? Let's pray. got to know that in this world, um, you promised us a lot of trouble, a lot of pain, and just frustration. God, the truth is, that's, that's not what we were meant to experience. We were meant to experience life with you. And that's not something, Lord, that we have to wait on. That's something that we can know now. And so, Lord, would you just take us as a church on a journey the next eight weeks and, and show us, Lord, what it means for your kingdom to come right here in our community, in our nation, and around the world, Lord. Thank you for, for not just saving us, but for redeeming us and reclaiming us. God, you don't want to get us back, but you want to take us back. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.